I'm Shane Saunders, and this is who I am. Today is the writer and eternal apologist, Shane Saunders. Hi, Shane. Jamie, how's it going? Good, thank you. Welcome to the garage. <laughs> the cold, dusty. It's normally cold for a, an April It afternoon. keeps the, the, the uh, heat out very well. Yeah. Yeah, I do have a heater if you, if you get, if you're, or I could get a blanket to drape over. You know, I would that. love to be coddled with a blanket if you wouldn't mind. <laughs> There's uh, these fantastic furniture blankets if you want one of those. I'm good for now. Okay, good. Um, thank you for coming down and, and coming on the show. Um, I have, uh, so my first question is um, what do you see yourself as? Are you, are you, do you consider yourself a writer? Uh, a menace to society. A menace to society. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, you know, I think I view myself as a writer. I think mm-hmm. I should say I view myself as a writer because that's, you know, what the plan is. That's what I've been doing. So um, there's been a bit of downtime recently, you know, but I think, yeah, it's still, still a writer. But mm-hmm. who knows, six months from now it might be, you know, the hot dog vendor on the corner of Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're about to move to New York. I am again. So <laughs> take two. Very coastal. I, I put the bi coastal for. Well, no, it's I'm the gay guy who's bi coastal. So mm-hmm. I mean, it's yeah. <laughs> um, did you grow up in Arizona, or is that just where? Where on? Or no, I did not grow up in Arizona. Oh, I grew up oh, in Nevada, wasn't it? No, uh, I was born in Orange County. Really? Then, yeah. So I was born in Fountain Valley, mm-hmm. um, and after realizing that Fountain Valley is also not the fountain of youth, we <laughs> moved to Temecula uh, or a small subsidiary of Temecula where uh, I was until I was 18 mm-hmm. and then made my trek up to LA full time after doing years of commuting, you know, for the odd and end audition and stuff when mm-hmm. I was doing the acting thing, um, which feels so long ago and I'm glad it's so long ago. <laughs> And you, I don't know why, maybe because you were a, such a fan of CSI, I, for some reason I had, I had it in my head that you were watching from some dusty um, desert town. No, it wasn't a desert, it was a basement. And okay. um, <laughs> no, so my grandmother, the story of CSI is when, my, when I was eight years old, uh, so 17 years ago. Um, my grandmother sat me down to watch this episode of the show that she said I would like because of the science. Mm. And uh, I sat down, I watched it, I told her I hated it. Mm. Told her I didn't like it. Uh, I went into my own bedroom at her house and there was a repeat of another episode from that season, season one. And I knew when I told her I hated it that I actually liked it, but I'm just a stubborn mule. So, you know, and that hasn't changed at all over the years. So uh, I watched it and I was fascinated and enamored with it. And it kind of spiraled into me originally wanting to be a real life CSI. Mm-hmm. And my grandparents buying me household items to make my own CSI kit. <laughs> um, the neighbors thought it was weird because I'd walk around the streets in a lab coat and this like Home Depot fishing tool kit, you know, mm-hmm. collecting specimens from the gutter. 
Um, and then I realized right around fifth, sixth grade that I wanted to be a writer. Mm-hmm. And that was also the year that I first visited the set of CSI. And from there, it turned into this kind of great adventure through the show's run, mm-hmm. uh, eventually going on to work on the show and work with George and also do continuity and research for the writer's room. Hmm. And when you were working with George, what were you, you were doing? Some We were doing his social media mm-hmm. and... Um, Hope George is doing well. <laughs> yeah, he's MacGyver in somewhere, isn't he? Uh, Atlanta, now that not Arizona, but Atlanta. Yeah, yeah and they is just got Dustin? renewed, I think, today. So, congrats, oh, oh. yeah, congrats to them. Yeah, very nice. Um, you, uh, when you visited the set, um, but you, you, you said you was that when you wanted to be a writer and you came to the set. Did that change anything for you? Were you looking at it and going, actually, I want to be on set or? Uh, I wrote my first script in Microsoft Word, and I brought it with me when I was 11 and on set, and it was for a season four episode, and Josh mm-hmm. Berman uh, wrote it, who's David Berman's brother. Mm-hmm. And uh, Josh was the first person I met on set that day, and I had explained to him that I had the script with me and that I wanted him, uh, or I wanted to be a writer on the show. Mm-hmm. And I was so out of my mind at that point, this 11-year-old kid telling, you know, this writer who's staffed on a show that I want to write for their show. Um, and he explained to me the legalities stuff. I didn't even know about that. Mm. You know, producers can't read scripts, you know, mm-hmm. uh, unless they're formally submitted through like agencies and stuff like that. So he said to just keep at it. And I did, I wrote many a spec script and, uh, it wasn't until 2016 that I actually got the first opportunity to work with Josh mm-hmm. when he had you know, gone up the le- ranks of becoming an executive producer and he had his own show on VH1. Mm-hmm. And so I was uh, on that show and working with him and it was a very full circle experience. Mm. Did you, were you tied to uh, writing spec scripts for CSI because you were a fan of the show or were you writing spec ship, uh, scripts for other shows at that point? There were other shows. I think CSI at that point was my bread and butter. I really felt like I had a, a knack for the procedural world. And um, over the years, I had been told I could write the characters. This is, you know, as I got older, that I was really good at like writing brass and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And there was a... a not to go into the, the big story of it, but during season 14, there was almost this opportunity where I was going to write one and it was very um, Vegas and forensic themed mm-hmm. sort of like the old school days of the show uh, which I had been pretty vocal about I think that the show lost their footing a little bit in that way but um, it didn't happen things happened and therefore my script didn't happen mm-hmm. yeah um, the show that you wrote with Josh on BH1 was Daytime Divas, right? Yeah, so I was um, the writer's assistant on Daytime Divas. It was uh, Vanessa Williams' uh, show for VH1. It was like loosely based off The View and Star Jones' time on The View and a book that she wrote on it. And we had a lot of fun. It was a very interesting ride. I, you know, you ask me about what I had been specking and stuff, and I always think of like dramas or, you know, uh, procedurals. I didn't really envision myself as like this dramedy guy as much as I loved shows growing up like Desperate Housewives and stuff. And our show, I feel like, was very much Desperate Housewives meets 30 Rock. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was very different for me. And it was different um, being in that room and observing it the way that you break a 
comedy or a dramedy is so much different than how you do a procedural or a drama. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the big thing at CSI was you come up with this like weird murder or this piece of evidence. And on this, it's just like, how do we land this punchline? And mm-hmm. I'm not very good with punchlines. I usually <laughs> am the punchline. So it's a little bit more difficult to do that. Mm. Um, uh, how was that leap for you from going from um, uh, being someone who wanted to be a writer to actually being in a writer's room? You always want that moment at least once in your life. And it was very, it was exhilarating. It was very, I remember when I got the call uh, to meet for the show, I was in Europe Mm -hmm. and I was like, no, I can't come in for a meeting later today. It's like not going to happen, not possible. And uh, so I I kind of like put it out of my mind for a minute. Like Mm -hmm. I didn't think it was going to happen. And I originally, I believe the meeting was for Notorious, the show that he had on ABC with Piper mm. Parabo. Because he had two that season. And so I, I landed back in L.A. and I was uh, given the opportunity to meet. And I go into the meeting and I think it's for Notorious. And so I remember uh, Josh's assistant at the time saying, so tell me, what do you know about the show? And I'm like, so it's, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, no, this is a, for Josh's other show. And I'm like, <laughs> crap Josh has another show like I mean I'm like what so um it it was a little daunting and then so then when you finally I remember uh about a week went by and I was in my car and I was at a red light and I decided to check my email and then I saw an email saying okay you're starting on daytime divas on Monday and Mm -hmm. I was like holy bleep uh (laughs) kids if you're at home I'm censoring for you um yeah so it was very it was a surprise and it was a welcomed one and it was a fun six months. Hmm. Oh. And going back to growing up and being a fan of uh, this, this um, I, I wouldn't say adult procedural show, but definitely more, you know, it, it, it wasn't SpongeBob. No, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> and you were, you were eight, you said when you first saw it. Yeah. Um, and it was very, uh, one of the things, uh, in, in my opinion, about CSI that was interesting was that it was when it first came out in 99 or 2000, 2000, 2000 yeah. um, was that it was so different. And it was this kind of outlier show that no one thought would work and didn't have a network for ages and, and kind of grew beyond what people expected it to. Yeah. And then um, it felt like everything moved around it so quickly, and, but it was so established. It almost became... Um, uh, retro towards the end. It almost kind of became this this kind of throwback show. It it did, yeah. And I, I think the problem with that is it's still a little bit looming on TV. There's so many copycats of what mm. CSI was. And the thing that made CSI so distinct was the cinematography of those early years. I mean, Danny Cannon did this great noir style with the show and it was shot on film. So it was, mm-hmm. you know, you had that grainy kind of gritty texture to it and as the years went on and this was kind of a thing i think across cbs was every show looked very procedural in terms of its cinematography and um you know on csi there wasn't the opportunity to really go to vegas anymore so there was a lot of green screen and the stories i felt um in some ways became like not very vegasy you know Mm. i don't know if you noticed that but um the those early years of CSI, I think a lot of shows try to imitate mm-hmm. and 
they may have found success, but I don't think they ever found the success that CSI had. Hmm. Um, I know NCAS just had their 350th episode last night, which is something we didn't get to, to meet. But I think CSI set the precedent for shows like NCIS to be as successful as they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And do you think that those kind of shows are, are so rare now? As, as TV changed enough around it, that, that kind of thing isn't going to happen too much I don't think we're going to see many shows that reach 350. Mm-hmm. Um, I de- there's definitely going to be people who try to recreate a castle or you know an NCIS. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're n- the one thing about all these copycat shows, and and I guess that's not a fair term to say copycat. But I mean they're, they're trying to replicate the success and the formula that CSI had is the you know there was such a dis- like a original premise on that show. It wasn't just about people interviewing people. It was about people searching and, you know, investigating these montages that we had set to like great, you know, soundtracks and, uh, John M. Keen and his score and all that stuff. So, uh, I don't think anyone has really found that groove since. So, and it's, I guess to answer your question. Yeah. I mean, I don't think anyone's going to find that again. It's because no one has, there's been, 15 years of shows trying to copy what CSI did. And I don't think any of them have really hit that mark yet. Hmm. Has it changed how you work as a writer? Well, I think the way that TV is changing has changed the way that I work as a writer, both in terms of the way that you do act breaks, mm-hmm. uh, because shows that used to be, you had four acts. Now we have five on some shows, six, um, including a teaser. Uh, so the way that you want to develop your story, it's, it's, more truncated, I feel like, in a way, unless you're on a Netflix show where you have 140 minutes for one episode these days. <laughs> uh, so in terms of trying to write now and, and stuff, it's you always are trying to find an original, uh, an original premise or some form of an original take on an existing concept. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, the only thing changing my writing is the way that TV is changing and the way that we're allowing shows to stream and what words you can, you know, have on air, you know, mm-hmm. I think Shonda Rhimes is also finding that now mm. you, you see her leaving ABC and going to Netflix. And if anyone's going to take advantage of the perks of Netflix, I think it's Shonda Rhimes. <laughs> who's always pushing boundaries as it is. There's uh, um, uh, and it, I don't, this may sound more negative than, than I intend, but there is this, this kind of, um, with popular culture and it happens with cinema. I mean, it happened in the 50s and it happened in the 70s. And there, it seems like it comes in these waves where you have uh, generational ideas that hark back a lot. So you have mm-hmm. this big movement at the moment where there's a big um, 80s retro thing. I mean, you have Ready Player One, you have um, Stranger, Stranger things. things and stuff yeah. like that. And it always feels like that, that peak is the moment when something new is going to come and something is going to change it and then mm-hmm. everyone starts rebuilding and then it gets retro again. Um, and, you know, that, that that's where a lot of independent cinema and stuff like that came from. Um, when you're writing, do you are you conscious of those things of, like, trying to come up with something that you know will interest someone on a business level and will sell, but trying to... Um, develop yourself as a writer is there is there is there often challenge there or is it there's no way to predict what 
the networks and studios want anymore because I don't think the networks and the studios <laughs> know themselves. Yeah. Um, if you look at Amazon, it's, I, I don't think they've had a through line in terms of their mm. programming, and now they're trying to find like the next Game of Thrones. And yeah. um, again, just like CSI, when you're trying to recreate something, you're not going to be able to accomplish that. You have to create your own thing and then just put your heart and soul into it. And um, one of the, the great pieces of advice given to me at CSI was, um, you know, in order to be the next Anthony Zyker, you have to leave that company and go out on your own and try to build your own thing. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that was given to me by one of Anthony's assistants at the time. Uh, he wanted to be like the next Anthony Zyker. And uh, if you want to be the next Anthony Zyker, you have to eventually go out on your own and do your own thing. And so when I write, it's I don't stay conscious of what the networks are buying because you just have to write a good script. Mm -hmm. You just have to write something really um, from your soul, deep in your soul, and you have to write it well. And that's what I've been trying to do. Um, my The things I like to write are very niche in terms of uh, concepts. Like I love old school Hollywood mm -hmm. and how that plays to a general audience. I don't really know anymore because <laughs> it, it's just... I don't think something like that would last on network television. I think mm -hmm. it would have to be a streaming or uh, a basic cable or a cable show. So um, I just write what I want to write and mm -hmm. I hope I do it well. And then I get meetings and if it goes well, it goes well. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. Mm. Um, I've been working, I've been branching out and I'm doing something unscripted at the moment. Uh, I don't want to talk about it too much, but we, it's a, like a take on, the talking dead, but for procedural shows mm -hmm. and uh, it's like a weekly soup type show. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we've been taking that out and exploring it and I've been working on pitching that and, um, I guess trying to go outside my comfort zone and, and do something a little different. Mm -hmm. Um, what's your process for, for working? What do you do? Well, I'm a night owl, so I tend to write more at night. Mm -hmm. uh, I have really bad insomnia. And so um, mornings like today, when you finally go to bed at 6.30 in the morning, um, <laughs> and then you realize that, yes, I did say I would wake up at some point today and go do something. <laughs> um, so I, I, I tend to write at night, and it used to involve a big old, uh, big old type Mr. Pibb or Dr. Pepper, and then I realized that is not healthy. So I've um, been doing the iced tea thing now. And uh, so I write at night when I'm not going to have to worry about people texting me mm -hmm. or, um, you know, getting a phone call. Um, occasionally I will check to see what Donald Trump is tweeting at that <laughs> hour because it seems to <laughs> coincide with my schedule. Mm -hmm. um, and then you go to this sleep with paralyzing fear of, you know, am I going to wake up to a nuke? Um, so I guess my, pro you know, it used to be that I would uh, do a vomit draft wouldn't want to outline because mm -hmm. I find outlines very tedious, but then working on, um, daytime divas, I became more accustomed to the different beats that you hit before you actually go to script. Mm -hmm. So, uh, now I do a little bit of an outline or some of this like chicken scratch version of it. And then I, I go to, to script and I hit what I want to hit. And, uh, it, works pretty well for me, but everyone has their own writing process and it's, it's, it's giving that advice. It's kind of just, you have to find your own rhythm and groove. Mm -hmm. 
Because that's what I did. Everyone told me, you know, you need to do an outline. And then I'm like, no, I'm just going to do a vomit draft. But then eventually I started doing outlines and I started doing like story, um, story areas and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's just different mm. for everyone. This, do you feel like there's, uh, because there's so many options now of, of um, getting stories out there and, and getting programming out there, that there's kind of a, a glut of writers wanting to be showrunners or are you, do you still feel that there is like a, the, the kind of, for lack of a better term, the purest writer who just wants to write, who is like a job in writer that will, will. I've always said, I never want to be a showrunner. Mm-hmm. I say that as a writer, but I, I realize that in terms of the current landscape, there's so many shows and there's only so many qualified showrunners that, people who probably don't have the most experience as showrunners are now, I guess, showrunning. That's just the the nature of the beast. And I read that, uh, an interesting article on that the other day of how uh, the networks and studios claim that they don't have um, enough experienced showrunners. But um, I've always viewed myself as like a creator and a writer, but I, I don't like having power. I think being a showrunner requires too much responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um and I don't want to be that person that fires someone. I'd rather give someone a job than fire them. Mm-hmm. And I remember being a casting assistant. It was nice because you got to give people jobs. So you got to, or at least be in that process of helping giving someone a job. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't want to be the hammer that comes down and is saying, you got to go or, you know, dictates how a show is run. That's just, I don't have that capability. It's, it's sort of like I was pushed into being in Taekwondo as a kid. And uh, I didn't like fighting. Mm-hmm. And I remember when it would come to sparring, I just like would l- go limp. I didn't want to do it uh, because I'm not a fighter. I was, you know, a lover, I guess. <laughs> um, and so it's sort of the same thing with writing is I just want to write stuff and mm-hmm. people can enjoy it. And I don't want to be the person that has like that political um, sort of, employer I just I I would never be a good boss Mm. I guess Mm. it was my grandparents owned fine Baskin Robbins stores and they I mean I saw them be bosses and they had fun with it um like when they employed me at six to work on free (laughs) cappuccino day um but then I would get ice cream out of it and I that same effect doesn't work in tv and film Mm -hmm. you you don't get free ice cream out Mm. on there are some crew members that would happily do anything for free ice cream. I love a food truck on set. (laughs) I I do do miss that. And that was the thing with Daytime Divas was we filmed in Atlanta and we wrote from L.A. Mm -hmm. And we didn't go out for any of the episodes. Oh, right. Um, It was usually kind of maneuvering our way around the lot to find other shows that would get perks and then we would (laughs) infiltrate their camp and then take it and leave. Is there, uh, like you've worked in L.A. now for how long? It's been... Off and on for probably seven years now. Seven years. And you've been in New York. I was there half a year in 2013. Mm -hmm. Now, are you seeing, because there are so many other places to film now, there's the the, the incentives in Atlanta have have pulled a lot of people away to there, and uh, Canada is very vibrant with a lot of the, I think most of the DC TV stuff is Mm -hmm. up in Canada. Um, is that something that interests you? The idea of because you're a writer, you can travel very easily, you can move around very easily, or are you like 
you want to keep it in those in the New York and, and LA area. I would love to do an episode that's on location in like Italy or something. <laughs> I, that's, that sounds great. I could go for some pasta. But, uh, you know, it used to be that even New York had very few rooms. And I just saw a list of it the other day because I'm trying to figure out, okay, what's what's going on with me when I make mm-hmm. the move in two weeks? And there's so many shows out there now mm-hmm. that yeah. have actual rooms. They're not just filming, but they have rooms out there now. And that wasn't the case. I remember like five years ago, there was maybe like four or five shows. And now the list is close to like 25. Mm. Like I, I was very shocked. Um, and it's across the, the landscape of network cable streaming, all that stuff. Um, I, I haven't had the experience of, you know, going on location for an episode. So it's, it's hard to say I would love it, but I'm also someone that likes to stay close to home, uh, because it's, it's like a comfort thing. Mm -hmm. Like I, I, you know, I very rarely like to go outside of my, uh, comfort zone. And you have to do that sometimes as a writer. In fact, you very much have to do that. Uh, but traveling has never really been the, like the pleasure spot of, you know, working in the the business. It, it's just been the creative experience, mm-hmm. I guess. And then all those other things fall into place after. Um, I don't know. What about you? When you were on CSI, how were the Vegas location shootings? Um, it, it got so i mean it was fine it was kind of fun to do i i had moved over from um from england and i did a lot more location work in england um and a lot more filming overseas there and i was kind of used to that so getting on a show that shot for nine months of the year was Mm -hmm. very different for me and getting on a show that was pretty much in town for for eight and a half of those nine months was very, you know, it was good because I just moved here. So I needed to uh, put roots down and it helped. And I had just had a, a, a child, um, not me personally, obviously, but, um, and it was, it was, it was perfect because I was around a lot more and that show, um, was very different, um, from a lot of the shows that were filming at that time because it had, um, Friday nights, it was it was shocking if we were going later than midnight, mm-hmm. um, and which wasn't always the case early on in the no. show. I mean, there were sixteen, seventeen hour days. Yeah, I know that in the middle of the and desert two and, and three was, were yeah. yeah. Um, but but towards the end, they had they had the eleven, twelve hour day down pretty much, and Fridays were um, fifty fifty for a midday start or a you know eight o'clock start in the morning, mm-hmm. and um, so it was it was good because I was used to working longer hours and away from home and it established it. And also it took me through what was the quiet period in town. You know, Mm -hmm. that was when everything left, everything was out of town and the number of things being filmed was so low in Los Angeles at that time. Um, so I rode through one of the, the sort of the bigger dips that the industry seen. Yeah. And, you know, it kind of spoiled me a little bit, but, I do miss traveling. I, having kids means that there's pros and cons, but mm-hmm. the the experience of traveling on when you're on the crew, you're going to locations that you would never visit, yeah. you'd never get access to, and that is always fascinating. And that, and also being, I don't know, this uh, without 
trying to sound too snobbish and old worldy about it, being growing up in London, I was so close to Europe and it was so so easy to get to European cities for a weekend that it was very casual that I would just go over to like Rome or I'd go to Portugal or I'd go to and it would just be a couple of days and yeah. it was fine and that it would be an interesting experience you'd have good food you'd see a new place and then you'd go home and and everybody did it and there was cheap flights everywhere and you know coming to LA you're now pretty much about as far from that world as you can get going west yeah. without hitting a new time zone or Hawaii and and travel is a lot more expensive and harder to do so I do miss that Although you don't have to do the 130 degree Vegas trips no. anymore. No, that was insane. a bright side. Yeah, I mean, when when we were going, we were filming a lot in at night, and we were on loca- um, in casino on the casino floor a lot, or we mm-hmm. were in like a dirt lot. I think mm, off the top of my head, maybe we were outside during the day three times yeah. the whole time I was there. Um, but I do remember one day we were going from one casino to another and we had to go outside to cross to it. And it was like everybody was just said, I can't go outside. It's too hot. I can't be outside. It's, it's incredible. And it is, it's, it's such a crazy conceit to have that place there. Well, and it's also, I mean, when you're inside with no windows yeah. and then you're stepping outside and you don't know how long you've been <laughs> shooting, you don't know what, you know, what you've been shooting at this point because mm-hmm. it's, you're being like hypnotized by the, the bells and whistles of the, yeah. the slot machines and stuff. <laughs> um, it was funny cause I, I recently, you know, I, I like to go to like slot machines and stuff recently and it was probably like in February I went where, uh, we filmed the very like beginning of the two hour rapid movie in this casino. And it was a mm-hmm. uh, Hollywood, uh, something or other casino. We, cause the finale didn't shoot in Vegas at all. And I forgot how the show brought in all the slot machines and stuff because mm-hmm. we would often film in LA and not in Vegas. And in LA, you don't have slot machines at the casinos. Mm-hmm. You have to go all the way like South near San Diego or whatever, or go to Vegas which, you know, the only incentive for me to go to Vegas these days is, like, buffet mashed potatoes. That's <laughs> all I want. I don't want to gamble. I want to drive five hours, have a plate of mashed potatoes, and then drive back. <laughs> um, would you say you're active on social media, or do you think that's just... I own no social media whatsoever. <laughs> I, I try not to uh, indulge in what all you other young whippersnappers do these days. <laughs> Uh, yeah, although I, I did realize that social media can really hurt you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I've scaled back a bit. Uh, I've also scaled back on all the selfies too. Mm. Uh, I got great advice from someone once that if you want to be taken seriously, don't have a lot of selfies on your profile, which I feel is confusing because I feel like that's all anyone does these days mm-hmm. is a selfie. It doesn't matter if you're 10 or 100 you're taking a selfie yeah and it's going viral too and you're getting paid for it at some point uh i don't know <laughs> what i've been doing wrong um so I, I recently did this cleanse of social media where i deleted a lot of stuff um but i'm still on it it's it's you know it's fun but it's also really really like not good for you it's mm. unhealthy in a way mm-hmm. um you see friends out doing stuff or you see friends who get new jobs and and you're sitting there and you're like plotting out, you know, words that you hopefully, you know, turn into something fruitful. And, um, 
that's the case these days because a lot of people who literally have no experience in the business, they do something and it goes viral and then they have an overall deal, you know, mm -hmm. at this point. Um, and it, people are sure to broadcast that on social media and it's frustrating because not all of us have had that success. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's, it's, it's a mental health component at this point for me. It's, I have to indulge when I feel comfortable enough to indulge, mm -hmm. but I also know that these days I have to take a step back and kind of retreat from hmm. the you, flaws sorry. of social media. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did a thing, uh, last year and I kind of, I, it started out as being one thing and I would, I would take a selfie a day. Mm -hmm. And the idea was that it, it, I never saw a single one of those selfies. You didn't? No, wow, didn't. that's pretty impressive. Um, I've seen one. I or feel two like or it, a there's too many. Yeah. Um, but the idea was that because last year was, it felt so chaotic and everything seemed like it was in turmoil. And mm -hmm. the idea was like, I just need grounding, and yeah. let me ground it by doing this. And it was, you know, it was kind of a silly idea. And I don't, I'm not, I don't have that many followers or anything like that so it's mm -hmm. not like i was um doing it for any other reason than just to help me feel grounded and make sure that at some stage i could go back and go oh look you haven't changed mm -hmm. you're still that person from january 1st um but every now and then someone would go oh you take a lot of selfies and i remember being like no i don't no don't say that that's really kind of, I'm, there's I'm something like, oh, about that saying. statement <laughs> that is like kind of alarming but it yeah. should it, like in the greater scheme of things it shouldn't be alarming like someone told me that, you know, selfies are a strong like component of like narcissism and, mm -hmm. and that's not the reason why I took selfies because I'm, I'm bored a lot. And mm -hmm. like, if I'm bored, then I just whip out the phone and it kills 10 seconds and yeah. then it's, I'm, you know, getting closer to sleep and you know, I've killed some time, 10 seconds of time, <laughs> you know, and maybe another two or three minutes of editing the photo after. <laughs> um, do you think that there's more, um, and this is, uh, you know, this can be taken however you want to, but do you think... I love a statement or a question that starts with, you can take this. You can take this. Anyway, Don't worry, yeah. I'm not going to do plan devil's advocate. I'm not going to play that. Got one. it. Um, but do you feel like, social media allows more self-reinvention or cuts down on that because you're so exposed. Is, it, do you you're so exposed it cuts down on that because the internet's forever. Mm -hmm. I know all about that. <laughs> do you it, feel like you've reinvented yourself? or do you, you I've lost weight. So, I mean, that's <laughs> I've, I've reinvented myself in that sense. Um, but uh, it's funny because I, I, someone you know, recently saw something of mine that was more recent, but then I saw something of mine from like 2004 online, you know, I was, mm, oh, wow. yeah, they did this feature on me because of CSI. And so, um, you know, and some of that stuff just won't leave the internet and it's just <laughs> like, fuck man, can, can we like get rid of Google or something like make it a little bit more difficult for people to find, you know, mm -hmm. things on you. Hmm. Does that, does that, scare you or is oh it yeah just, it terrifies yeah. me it, it terrifies me um i didn't know that there was something on my imdb recently hmm. and it was a nickname that i had in elementary school or not elementary middle school i haven't been called in years don't know how it ended up on the imdb oh, really and someone called me by that name i'm like ah shit and like <laughs> what the and then they're like imdb i'm like what like who does so i i'm 
can only assume it was someone from middle school that wanted to humiliate mm. me in some way. Um, I, they could have just left a comment on one of my Facebook posts instead, <laughs> but they went the extra mile. Yeah. Yeah. And IMDb is pretty, it's like the, the, the Scarlet Letter permanent mark. It's really hard to get stuff off of it. I know people who work at the agencies and they're like, they crowdsource. Like, how can I contact IMDb to get this off of like my client's page or whatever? And there's like this loop around. It's mm-hmm. almost as difficult as getting a blue check mark on Twitter. <laughs> and some of us still have not obtained that precious check mark. Mm hmm. Do you put the little, what is it that the fake people do? The little blue diamond or something? No, because that like represents something else entirely that I'm not going to go into on this program. Um, (laughs) It's like so wrong in LA too. Um, But people do that. And I want to like say to them, um, so you know that means, but I don't Mm. because let them figure it out on their own. Every now and then I like applying for the blue check mark and being, and just writing the most, the, the dumbest thing I can think of to justify why I should have it. Which I, just, I hate writing about why I should justify Like writing yeah. a bio on a dating mm-hmm. app, don't want to do it. And I'm a writer. <laughs> like I, I should want to write about me, but I don't. I don't, not succinctly. I mean, mm. and I don't want to like, I remember I applied twice for the Twitter check mark. I did it myself. <laughs> and then, you know, the coveted Twitter check mark. Um, I did it myself and then I had someone else at one of the agencies and they're like they're not gonna like accept you or whatever and i felt so excluded and i I guess that's a little bit of the the ego like that's when my ego does come into play because i feel like there's people on there that have achieved that check mark for less so to them i say bleep (laughs) (laughs) i'm being varied with when i bleep on this thing but yeah, <laughs> I'll, let you, I'll let you go in and edit. Um, I, very quickly, um, you can. I'm seeing your face on this, and I'm nervous about where this is going. No, no, I, it, we we talked about this a little bit before we started recording. But okay. you had you were a guest on the Tucker Carlson show. Is that his name, Carson or Carlson? Who is this man you speak of? <laughs> I literally is this fake news? Yes, it's. Um, protest organizer yes yes and uh, <laughs> i i'm not the biggest fan of that man i think he represents a, a a kind of branch of american media and i think most media I, I mean you know i'm politically i think that the democrats are too far to the right sometimes you know on a lot of things and i'm so for for anything that's fox news mm-hmm. as far as i'm concerned is way out there and it shouldn't even be considered and right so um what what how did that come about how did you go how did how did they find you or did i got into this really heated debate with someone on facebook who uh-huh. had actually organized these protests or whatever mm-hmm. and uh i don't want to name any names because i've already dealt with the drama of all that but um we got into this huge debate and it ended up going to facebook message but originally uh, what had transpired on Facebook and the actual post, a screenshot of it got out. And I then received a call about going on Fox news. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I went on with certain expectations and I had disclaimed, you know, I had made a few disclaimers beforehand. I did not organize, uh, these protests. I'm 
just going on as someone who has protested. And uh, the whole thing, it's it really spun out of control. Mm. Um, one, they didn't get my last name right, which, <laughs> I mean, how dare they? Uh, but it really it turned into this thing that it wasn't meant to be, and I did misspeak on something. Uh, I totally own up to that now. But there was so much flack mm. afterwards, especially by people I actually know, and friendships went away. And I was opening, I was open to their reasoning for why they felt it was so bad. But at a certain point, it turned personal. Mm-hmm. And there was this one instance where there's someone I used to know, very vaguely, um, launched this like campaign to like have me banned from the industry or whatever. Hmm. And this is one of those crazy, you know, Twitter checkmark people. Um, so, I mean, and I also have no idea how he got his because he's literally done less than me. Um, but the Tucker Carlson, you know, it kind of made me reevaluate life at that point in terms of uh, wanting to keep a low profile, mm-hmm. you know, for a bit. And I did. Um, and then I realized that in the grand scheme of things and, you know, I never watched it. I didn't want to watch it. I still won't watch it. Someone tried to get me to watch it recently. Mm-hmm. And I, I was just like, no. Um, but people told me it, it wasn't terrible. And I think, um, and that was from a reasonable, like, liberal, you know. And there's liberals I know who said I made their cause look like, you know, an embarrassment. Um, so I've been rolling with the punches of that. And I've still been... Um, you know, asked about that a little bit, and mm. it's a, it was an unpleasant experience. It was definitely a learning experience. Mm-hmm. I learned a lot from it. I learned what not to do. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, it just it spiraled out of control, and I wish it hadn't because I think it could have been a good message. Because literally two days after that thing is when the the motion for the like transgender bathroom ban started to start. Mm-hmm. And I had literally just been on it two nights before talking about, you know, how the community was a little bit worried about that. Mm-hmm. And Tucker looked at me like he had just, like, dropped something in his underwear mm. and, like, didn't want it to stench up the place. And he just looked confused. And that's, he's like, that's, that's not... That's pretty much his permanent that's, that's, look. Yeah, it's, it's, it's <laughs> you know, it's like a, a stroke victim, I guess. At that point, it's, like, permanent. Um, but... He was not easy to deal with. Um, mm. I think there are Fox News people who are a little bit mm-hmm. easier to deal with, but um, I somehow got on his radar, mm. and it was the wrong radar to be seen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> do you think that's? I mean, there's 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 a couple of things. Uh, one is like when when it was happening. Do you remember there being a moment when it was happening where you're like, oh, this is not what uh, we agreed to. Well, they promised me hair and makeup beforehand, and <laughs> there was no one there for it. So mm-hmm. that's when I knew something was up. But uh, there, there was, especially getting up to the countdown of, there was some doubt. Mm-hmm. I, I like, I was really starting to have this crisis of conscience of, do I do this? Do I, you know, mm-hmm. is it even worth having? You know, I should have looked back and just done, hey, you know what, leave them in the lurch. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't, and I tried to go with it the best that I could. Um, but there was a moment fairly, fairly early where I was like, this is the 
And it, it was as soon as I misspoke. It was like I, I knew, and it was like this trigger that went right to my brain. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I was so thrown off that I just tried to keep my composure and on all that stuff. And mm-hmm. it, it was... It was a very, very long Monday. Yeah. And it kind of ties into, you know, you've, you've mentioned about the idea of uh, um, going viral and this. It, it's it's like very easy um, with with social media and with every. I mean, with anything, really. Mm-hmm. But it's very easy to take it to a step where all control is, is lost mm-hmm. or all... Um, you're, you're, you know, it's taken away from you. And I still get death over. threats to this day from yeah. weirdos on Facebook wow. that show up <laughs> in my like other folder. Uh-huh. And <clears throat> I, you know, I had del- changed my name on Facebook for a bit, and then I did, uh, you know, and they say any press is good press. Well, I, I have news for those people <laughs> who say that. Not so much. The day after, I get, like being reached out, you know, to from the the Daily Beast. Mm-hmm. Issuing a con- and like someone said, I was a paid actor by Trump, or I used to mm. like, and it was like I haven't acted in years. <laughs> you haven't been paid. For I haven't been paid for acting for <laughs> yes, exactly. And you know, at this point, I kind of wish that I had taken money to do it because it would have been a lot more. Fr- I could have immediately left on a plane afterward and gone to Hawaii or whatever, mm. which I contemplated. <laughs> uh, I should have done it, but is that uh, uh, being someone in create in in TV and, and being creative now automatically um, puts you in a position where it's kind of required to, to be a presence online. Um, it seems like... You have to be accessible to a yeah, regard. And, and fans definitely want that. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, it, it kind of ties back to when you were... This is all sort of pre that. Um, for a while, you were like the, the fan of CSI. And mm-hmm. that's that's what you were, were... This young guy who was a fan of CSI. And that, yeah. gave, that got you onto set and mm-hmm. got you to meet people. Um, and there's, there's an expectation of that, of being that accessible. Um, but do you think that's, I mean, can you still work in, in a creative field and not have that? Cause I've heard stories of like actors, um, either needing to post stuff on social media mm-hmm. when they're guest starring in shows or they have, it's been asked like how many followers they have as part of the process of, of getting a role. Auditioning, yeah. I mean, it, it's they, they want to see how many. I, it, well, I mean, you think about CSI when it worked with George. Mm-hmm. And he had been very anti social media, but then we had a really long talk about how it needed to be done. Mm-hmm. And uh, we did it. And after maybe a month or two is when he realized I, I'm not liking this Shane. Can you delete my account or whatever? Yeah. And, uh, I did. And then he's back on it now, but that's sort of like the mandate now at CBS, I mm-hmm. think is if you're on one of their shows, you need to have social media. Um, and I don't think he's doing the Twitter thing anymore. I think he's just doing Instagram, which is a mm-hmm. little bit easier to deal with. Um, cause you can turn comments off. You can do all these things now. Um, but I always say that, Twitter is the new audio commentary on a DVD set. Mm-hmm. It used to be that, you know, you'd buy the DVD set after a season, you'd listen to an audio commentary by the producers or the actors or whatever, and you'd get that insight into the episode. Yeah. And that was always fun for me. Now it's the audio commentaries on Twitter and everyone's live tweeting. And I think takes away from the experience of watching a show. Mm-hmm. Like you, when I used to watch, you know, TV, it's, I was full, 
you know, both eyes on the screen and invested in it. If I needed to do something, it would be doing a commercial break. Now, no one, you know, everyone wants to fast forward. They want to look at their phone. They want to do. So uh, the studios and networks have kind of capitalized on that a little bit and said, okay, well, we're going to, while you're supposed to be watching our show, also push content for it online at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so you're kind of getting the best of both worlds. Um, But I will always be an old school Hollywood guy (laughs) uh, in terms of like, I wish we still shot on film. Like I, I think film looks so much better than digital. Um, But we don't anymore. Um, And to that point, it's, I also wish that like, not everything was done through social media. Mm -hmm. It it used to be more fun, I think without it. And I mean, there's moments of fun. Like if, you know, a movie does a promotion with like Fuji or whatever, like that's great. Give me free anything. Mm -hmm. But, um, (laughs) that's not always the excitement that they push out, you know, for content these days. Hmm. Um, is there, I mean, I, I'm almost love to ask this because we've talked about social media so much, but, is there is there somewhere that you'd like people to find you online, or would you rather just be don't left? Google me? <laughs> just uh, don't. I, I'm on Twitter. It's that's private though these days. Um, I have Instagram though, and mm-hmm. it's s underscore a u n d e r s. And uh, I mean, I'm I'm more active. I feel like there in terms of a public sense, mm-hmm. in terms of how like the public can see me and stuff. Um, but otherwise, I'm on Twitter. And I hate it. <laughs> uh, good luck with the move. Thank you. It's uh, coming up and I'm excited for it. A little daunted. I have to deal with humidity of New York. Mm-hmm. I've never done that before. So. Oh, yeah. The, um, when I was there, I think it was August. Um, this was years ago. This was like 94 or 5. 94, 95? Yeah. I thought you made it sound more recent that you were going to go with something more recent than that. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a lot older than you. Um, and I, I remember we were, there was this one place that we stayed at and I went for a walk in the morning before, just as the sun was kind of coming up. So it was like seven o'clock in the morning, something like that. And I just felt like I needed to shower three times because yeah. it was so humid. And I already shower three times a day without (laughs) humidity. It's just like if someone's talking to me, it's probably like I'm in the bath or I'm in one of my two showers. Um, But yeah, I'm I'm not looking forward to that in New York at all. Especially this is my first time having a roommate in two years. Mm, I've lived on my own and now you have to kind of conform around them. Mm -hmm. And I'm it's going to be interesting. (laughs) There there could be blood. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thanks, Jamie. That's it for the show. We'll be back in two weeks. You can find us online at whoiampodcast.com and contact us by email at whoiam at gmail.com or by phone at 818-308-4066. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, there is a submissions form on the site. We're also on iTunes where you can leave a rating if you feel inclined. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jamie Gamble, and this was This Is Who I Am.